stocks, bonds, ETFs, straight out of downtown Chicago. This is Zach's Market Edge. Welcome to Zach's Market Edge, the podcast about investing in your life. I'm your host, Tracy Reinick, and this week I'm going solo again for a very special podcast. These are my favorite, as always about how to be a winning investor. We've talked about the secret mom and pop investors, you know, the secretary at some company who works there for 50 years. And then when she passes away, she suddenly leaves some kind of estate and a donation of like $7 million to someone. And you're like, wait, how did she get that? We've talked about a lot of these stories over the years on the podcast. They are my favorite. I'm always like looking for them because sometimes you don't really see them make the headlines. And so they're kind of hidden, but now one has appeared um, so I've always said that Anne Scheiber was one of the greatest investors of all time. We've talked about her on several podcasts. She's the one who took $5,000 and over 50 years, she had 22 million. So I did think hardly anybody was ever going to top her, right? But these recent he- headlines tell me otherwise, because it's, it's even more incredible of a story. That's why I love to do these podcasts. And so let's dive right into it because I'm not sure many of you saw these stories because I only kind of saw it in passing. So the recent headlines were about a clarinetist. Is that how you pronounce it? A man who plays the clarinet for the Boston Pops Orchestra. He recently gave a $100 million donation to the Boston University Medical School. It was one of their biggest donations ever. It was uh, amazing, and it's lovely to see these big donations coming from these rich donators, right? His name is Edward Avedisian. Wait, I'm saying it wrong. Avedisian. Avedisian. Edward Avedisian. His family fled Armenia about 100 years ago, coming to the United States. He grew up in Rhode Island. The family didn't have much. They were immigrant family. He went to BU on a scholarship. I think they said it was $350 for the scholarship. So he has a lot of ties to BU, but not to the medical school because he was a musician with the Boston Pops Orchestra. But he has friends, family members who are in medicine, so uh, some of his donation went to that. He has made prior donations to various organizations, including, I think they said, uh, several million dollars to the School of Pharmacy. So this was not his first donation. But your first question you have to ask is, how is a retired musician paying out this kind of donation? Where did this money come from? And then when you see in his family background that he didn't inherit it, so that's not where it came from, you begin to wonder and ask a lot of questions. Other people who saw these headlines about this donation and about how it came from stock investing had the same questions I did. Well, how could that be? And some other people actually interviewed him. Thank goodness. Thank goodness someone is focusing on how did he get this money and not just the donation part, but the donation part obviously is important as well. Um, but most of the articles had the headline that he made $170 million in the stock market. And when I first saw that headline, and that was on Market Watch, they used that in their headline, like retired musician made 170 million in stocks or something like that was the headline. 
I immediately think, okay, how, how could this be done? Um, if there was no inheritance and they're, they're not saying, you know, they were like, uh, sh uh, Cheryl Sandberg, you know, employee number three or whatever at like one of these big tech companies. So that's how you get it. No, this is just from his own investing savvy. And the first thing I always think about when I see a number that big is that maybe he was a Berkshire Hathaway original shareholder, right? Because that would make some sense. We've heard these stories many times over the years about Berkshire um, shareholders. So Edward is now in his mid-80s, so that could make sense that he um, bought some Berkshire Hathaway really early and just held it all these years. So in 2004, the New York Times did an article about all the millionaire shareholders. So that was uh, 18 years ago. There were quite a few of them 18 years ago, and now there's even more. Uh, if, if you've held on and you've lived as long as Warren Buffett himself has been living, then you are doing pretty good in the Berkshire stock. So one guy in that article in 2004 bought shares in 1978, he said, at $175 a share. And um, at that time in 2004, the A shares, because that's what they would have been in 1978, were trading at $93,000 a share. He bought at $175. Um, but now they're trading at $434,189 or $434, a share, the A shares. That man bought in 1978 at $175. If he still is owning it, that is a return. I just went from the first trading day in 1978. That's a return of 166,896% through October 25th, 2022. And $10,000 invested in 1978 would have been $16.68 million today. 100000 invested, which would have been a lot of money in 1978, would have been $166 million. But that's why I immediately think of Berkshire Hathaway shareholders, right? Because to get that $170 million number you could have been all in or something in Berkshire Hathaway in the 70s or even the 80s, and you would have maybe gotten that number. But that's not what it was. So in the Market Watch article, they did interview him to try to determine what it, what was happening. <laughs> and they did ask him about Berkshire Hathaway. Now, apparently he did own Berkshire Hathaway over the years, but it wasn't Berkshire that drove all the holdings. He's not like a, a Berkshire, you know, fan like that other guy is who bought and held all those years. And that was it. Um, so the one who did the interview is Adam Cecil, S-E-E-S-S-E-L. -S -S -E and he's the founder and CIO of Gravity Capital Management in New York. And he's also the author of Where the Money Is, Value Investing in the Digital Age. So he's the one who interviewed him for the Market Watch article. And he found a couple key things. So um, let's talk a little bit more about what Edward told him about how did he do this. So this was just kind of like a sideline job for him. He did love his job in the orchestra. And he didn't start investing until the 1970s when he was in his 40s. He was single, he had no kids, and he had a lot of extra cash just kind of sitting around at that point. And he said he had low expenses and no debt. 
And he actually didn't get married until he was 55. So he started investing when he was still single. And so he could put everything into the stock market. He was self-taught. He read books about investing. He read the Wall Street Journal and the Investor's Business Daily. Those were like the two major newspapers. And when cable TV came into being, he watched CNBC and Bloomberg on cable. And when the the orchestra would travel, he would read on the plane. That's where he got a lot of his research in. And he would like to read IPO prospectuses. So that's a little different than what we've seen with some of our other long-term winning investors. The um, IPO market uh, can be rewarding, but very difficult to kind of pick winners among the IPO prospectuses. But he talked about, uh, you know, trying to find nuggets within the prospectuses. So there are just certain investors who like the hunt, right? Who like digging around, finding companies that nobody's really talking about, which certainly would have been the case in the 70s and the 80s. Um, and the, even the 90s up until, say, like 1995 and the Internet made information more free-flowing for investors. And so then you could access, you know, annual reports on your computer and all of that. Prior to that, you had to be like Warren Buffett. You had to actually call the company, order it from them and have them send you the annual report or, you know, any of the SEC filings and things. And that's how Buffett got a garage full of annual reports and things when he was doing his research about companies. Now it's much easier. And I know what you're thinking, like, oh, you know, everybody has access to all this information now, so there are no real hidden gems out there. But that's still really not the case. There are plenty of hidden gems. There's, you know, over 4,000 companies that have a Zach's rank right now. Many of them went IPO even just in the last two years. And most of them, none of us have ever heard of or know about. So we just think we know about all the companies, but we really don't. And even if you go on some sites like StockTwits and plug in a uh, ticker of a smaller, lesser known company, you might be surprised at how few people actually follow those companies on even a, a you know social media site like StockTwits. It's not, every company is not Tesla, which is in the news at all the time. And most are not like that. So he was a, a digger, it sounds like, and liked to read those prospectuses and find some juicy companies. Um, so apparently in the article, it says he wouldn't talk about his holdings. Like he wouldn't give a list of what they are only to say that they, they are major household names that we all would recognize. And um, again, he did own some Berkshire Hathaway at some point, but he didn't make the vast majority of the money from owning Berkshire. Like some of these other people did. He liked tech and he specifically mentions Microsoft and Bill Gates in the article. We don't know for sure because um, he didn't actually say this, but you know, did he buy the Microsoft IPO? If he did, its annualized rate is pretty good. Through 2020, it was 24% a year annualized, the Microsoft IPO, which was in 1986. Um, but I'll have a little bit more on Microsoft as we go along here in this podcast. So he owned less than a dozen companies and he liked to concentrate his bets. This is different than what we saw with Ann Scheiber. She owned about a hundred companies at the end. 
that is way too much in my opinion. Um, but she made it work somehow, but Edward concentrated his bets. And if you guess even right on just one of the 12, you can do really well, which obviously he did guess right on at least one of the 12, right? To get 170 million. So he did say he bought and held for decades. Um, and I'm quoting here, I just let it ride. The market always comes back, unquote. But Edward did sell. Remember, Ann Scheiber never sold because she didn't want to pay the commissions to her broker. He did sell if something was not working. Um, so while he did help hold for decades, there was clearly some that, no, I got this wrong. I need to get out. And so he did. Um, he talks about how investing was similar to him to that of making music. Both required creativity and interpretation, and then both come down to the individual. So he, as an, as an investor himself, had to make the investing decisions. You can get all the advice you want. You can listen to the gurus on TV. You can get all the newsletters and kind of see what they are doing. But when push comes to shove, if you're managing your own portfolio, the buck stops with you, right? You as the individual are, are making um, all the final decisions. And I guess he likens that similar to music where each one is contributing right to the music. Uh, but I like that. I like that um, he's talking about how it requires creativity to be a good investor or just an investor at all, right? It, it does. Uh, you, you do have to be creative when you're looking at stocks and trying to find companies that are going to outperform for several decades. So uh, he had some other secrets, which um, I don't really recommend for you and I, but I'm going to talk about them. So he used margin early. He had 13 brokerage accounts at one point, he said, and that allowed him to buy more IPO shares, for instance, because usually they allotted IPO allotments to like each account, uh, like a certain percentage. But if you had 13 accounts, you could get more. You could also buy more on margin with the more accounts. So he says he does not recommend these strategies. And if you have a family or kids to support, he doesn't recommend it. He had no obligations, no kids, no family. He didn't get married until he was 55. And he said he could have lost everything. Um, so he doesn't recommend it, but um, it did work for him. And so there he is with 170 million. So he invested for 40 years. He liked the challenge of it, as I mentioned. You know, he was a digger looking for hidden gems type of individual, it sounds like. And he had goals. And what were those goals? It wasn't just to get rich because he was rich pretty early on, it sounds like. Um, you know, he probably started with quite a bit of money because he, uh, you know, lived a, a cheaper, lower expense lifestyle, he said. And um, you know, so it wasn't just about getting more to go buy other things. He did have goals for the money and that was to do these donations. So as I mentioned over the years, he has been slowly doling out these nice big donations. And the first one, you know, the one that was several million dollars to the pharmacy school had to be somewhat shocking to those who did not know that he was this good of an investor. Um, but now the $100 million donation really has to be 
the big one because it just does like that. You don't see every day, even amongst the truly rich uh, people who have the higher incomes, uh, you know, sports and actors and things like that. But to have uh, someone who is a retired musician who made, you know, mostly middle class to upper middle class salaries for his lifetime. This is a tremendous accomplishment. Um, so I wanted to turn back to maybe other ways that he might have done it since he's not really telling us. But his gushing about Microsoft leads us to believe that maybe he did buy that IPO and he held it for a long, long time. Now, remember, Microsoft was already making people into what they called Microsoft millionaires by the 1990s. So, you know, within a couple of years, certainly Bill Gates and um, the other co-founders and people early on in the company all became millionaires and then billionaires. But some of the early investors who did not work there also became the same, even by like four years after the IPO. If you just would have put money in in 1990, by 2000, because of the crazy 1990s uh, boom and bubble in the dot-coms and tech stocks, you were still sitting pretty then. So I looked up to see what would have happened if the guy who had bought the Berkshire Hathaway shares in 1978 had bought Microsoft when it went IPO. So Microsoft from the IPO date in 1986 through October 25th, 2022 is up 261,006% during that time. So $10,000 invested in the IPO would have been 26.1 million. So that's still not getting us to um, Edwards, 170 million. And he stopped investing a couple of years ago and the shares have run really you know, rallying here again in the last couple of years. Um, so it couldn't have all come from that. But what if Edward had put in $100,000? That would have been a lot of money in 1986. But again, he was single, no kids, low expenses, and he kind of just threw it all into the market and he concentrated his bets. So 100000 obviously would have been $260 million dollars or 261 million, sorry, 261 million in uh, to 2022. So then you are, if he just held it all that time, getting closer to that 170 million without even margins, options, um, you know, all that stuff. Um, the little tricks on the side you can do to try to boost returns, even if he didn't do any of those boosts he still would have been way up there. I also thought about, you know, I wonder if he had bought the Amazon IPO. That was in 1996. Amazon IPO, $10,000 invested in that would have been 5.7 million. Not as good of a return um, going back for Amazon or 57,128% because it had a number of years where things were not all that great in there, um, as good as what we've seen. And then Microsoft just has had 10 more years of compounding as well. And now with the recent run-up in Microsoft shares, that compounding is, is really compounding on those older returns. So you're seeing um, 
something even better here. But none of this includes dividends, by the way. Microsoft started paying a dividend in the early 2000s, somewhere in there. So if you had been getting the dividend and reinvesting that as well all those years, you would have even more money than what this is for any of these. Um, Amazon does not pay a dividend, um, and neither does Berkshire Hathaway. So you wouldn't have those issues there. But I did take a look at what if you had gotten it wrong over all those years because you know, these are fun tales to tell because someone did get it right. They're either in the Berkshire because they grew up down the street from Warren Buffett. And when they heard that that investing guy was starting a fund, they decided to give him some money, right? That That's a tale, a true tale. Actually, it was they didn't grow up right down the street. They lived right down the street and they were like a college professor. <laughs> and they ended up like nearly basically billionaires by the time they died because they never sold from Warren's uh, great investing prowess. So there's some stories like that. It's just kind of luck because we all don't, you know, live right down the street or hear stories about, you know, investing geniuses like Warren Buffett living in our neighborhood. But um, we still have access to all these IPOs and other things, the same as anyone else. And Edward still managed through his researching, his reading of IPO prospectuses, his, um, you know, belief in finding great companies and all of that and sticking with it led him to this great fortune as well. But again, what if you had guessed wrong? So in the 1970s, oil was a big deal. There were two oil shocks, as I've discussed on the podcasts in the past, um, the oil embargo of the early 70s and then the Iranian revolution shock of the late 1970s. So energy prices soared. Um, gasoline, oil, everything was super expensive in the 1970s. It helped lead to the inflationary spiral that happened in that decade. And um, one area that did do well, even when stocks were not doing well for that decade, were the energy stocks. So Exxon you know, became one of the largest companies in the world. Mobile, which was a second company at the time, they were not one company then. Um, also, uh, Soaring, you know, Chevron, all the names that are around that were around then were crushing it. But uh, so you might have been inclined in 1978, instead of buying Berkshire Hathaway, as that one guy did, you might have bought Exxon, right? And it did boom for a number of years, but it's had such big boom and bust cycles with the biggest bust just being the last like 12 uh, years that the returns just haven't been that great. So ExxonMobil, ticker XOM right now, is busting out here in 2022 to not only a five-year high, if you look at the five-year chart, but an all-time high. So you might be thinking like, wow, what if I had held that all those years <laughs> the same way? And we know the stories of my grandmother who held it from the 1970s, but she did die five, five or six years ago now. So obviously no longer holding that. But her sister, my great aunt, is still with us, and she too held on to her Exxon shares from all that time. So you would be thinking, oh, it's busting out to new all-time highs. Way to go to Tracy's great aunt, right? But looking at it from uh, the first, uh, January 3rd, 1978 to October 25th, 2022 for ExxonMobil, it's up just 3,591% during that time. So $10,000 invested in 1978, which was a lot of money in 1978, that would have been like someone's whole salary almost in 1978. That 
is only worth three hundred and fifty nine thousand dollars here in nineteen in twenty twenty two. All these years later. And that does not include the dividends. And Exxon has paid a strong dividend and raised its dividend many of those years. So you would get some extra compounding off the dividend. But it's been real poor returns. By comparison, the S&P 500 is up 4,209% during that same time period. So 3,591% for Exxon. 4,209% for S&P 500. This just goes to show you how difficult it is to be Edward (laughs) and to get it right and, or to be Warren Buffett and to get it right. Um, But all it takes is finding one lottery stock. It is hard out there. And what appears to be lottery stocks currently may not be lottery stocks in the next, you know, 10 or 20 years. And past leaders sometimes aren't future leaders. And we know that Microsoft itself had a terrible decade in the 2000s. It sold off in the dot-com bust years, 2001 to 2003, and it didn't hit its 2000 year uh, highs, its dot-com boom highs until 2013. You had to hold it for more than a decade to even get back to those highs. So it's easy as uh, an investor or, you know, those of us checking in on these stories all these decades later to be like, oh, sure, I would have held on to that. I would have just stuck around (laughs) while the money went nowhere all those years. But would you? Would you be Edward? Um, He says, I just let it ride. The market always comes back. So a lot of it really is about personality, what kind of discipline you have, um, maybe not looking at your portfolio every day, you know, buying good quality companies, hoping for the best, selling if it's not the best. He did sell sometimes. He did take a more concentrated position in no more than 12 holdings. And I've said, and the experts have said over the years, you can have a diversified portfolio with as few as 10 stocks because you can get a bunch of different areas. So if tech is out of favor, you might have a retailer or a restaurant or a manufacturer of some kind. You might have some big caps. You might have some smalls. When he would have bought a lot of these IPOs, they are mostly small caps, although occasionally we do get, you know, one of the big unicorns that goes to the market, um, like a snowflake or those types of companies that everybody's waiting around for years and years to go public. Um, And when it does, then it's billions of dollars market cap, um, like an Alibaba, the largest IPO at that time was Alibaba. Um, But a lot of the others are just kind of these smaller companies, these smaller names that not as many know about. And that is where you can find some hidden gems are on the small caps. But you've really got to do your research. You've really got to have the patience to stick it out when no one else cares about it. And there's only 150 people following it on stock twits, right? And nobody nobody even posts when they post earnings. That's, that's a hidden one right there when nobody even cares what the earnings report is. So um, he ended up with top names, but Microsoft was not a top name when it went IPO. And it wasn't even a top name for the first five or 10 years really out there. You know, other companies like IBM were still the top names in technology. So 
Um, you don't have to buy the IPO to get in early on a lot of these companies. That's the old Peter Lynch uh, strategy that it takes a long time for companies to go from the small cap to the big cap usually and to grow their business. So you do have a lot of time to get in on these new businesses when they are launching. So you don't have to time it, um, you know, 100% correctly on buying the IPOs on a lot of these. And most IPOs don't actually go anywhere. You don't become Edward off of most IPOs. That's the difficulty of the, you know, investing in the IPO market. Um, but if you would have even bought Microsoft after its dot-com bust sell-off, you would have done pretty well for yourself too. And that was, you know, well after the IPO, almost 15 years after the IPO. So um, there's lots of ways to be these great investors, but usually the story is kind of the same in terms of um, them buying some great companies holding those great companies for more than just a year. You can't just be in there a year and thinking you're going to get there. It, not even 10 years. He held for 40 years and Ann Scheiber held for 50 years because you have to ride out the cycles, the ups and the downs. And there are always going to be down times, no matter what company you buy, um, no matter what era you're investing in. That's just how it how it goes. So have the strong stomach and be like Edward, look around, but don't necessarily be like him on his strategies. As he said, he took a lot of risk. It did pay off, but he doesn't recommend it for everyone. But even if you don't take those risks of the margins and the options, you can still, um, you know, see great returns. As I mentioned, you can still be a owner of Berkshire Hathaway and still be a millionaire shareholder. As the New York Times article put it in 2004, there were plenty of them then. I'm sure there's even more of them now if they've uh, managed to make it all these years later. But you know, that's the power of compounding and getting some good companies growing their businesses year after year after year. Because remember, you own the business. Never forget about that either. So let's celebrate Edward. And I wish to thank him for sharing with uh, MarketWatch because, you know, we all are watching. And I'm glad he talked to Adam several times about, you know, what his strategy is to give some advice to younger investors, even though he didn't want to say what all of his holdings are. That's okay. We can kind of figure it out. But that's just a tremendous track record and definitely uh, far superior to what Anne has done as an investor. And basically most professional investors. <laughs> Edward was a professional investor on the sidelines and now um, medical students and patients at Boston University are going to benefit from his wonderful $100 million donation. So that's what it's all about. Have your goals, have your strategy, invest in good quality companies. So let me recap some of the stocks I talked about on this episode. So there was like Berkshire Hathaway. We can't forget them, right? B-R-K-A is the A shares, but if you can't afford those, which most of us can't, there are the B shares, which they did launch so that, you know, those of us mere mortals could buy into Berkshire Hathaway. So those are slightly more affordable 
and most people end up buying the B shares. Um, then we talked about Microsoft, MSFT is the ticker there. I did talk about Amazon, AMZN, and I mentioned uh, ExxonMobil, XOM, busting out to new all-time highs, but was not really a lottery stock over all those years. Could it, could it be in this next energy cycle? I, I don't know. You've been waiting around. My, my great aunt has been waiting around a long time for it to finally, uh, you know, do something and do its thing. So we'll see on some of those. But, um, you know, again, there's plenty of other big names uh, I have that list of the the best performers from the 30 years from 1990 to 2020, and it's uh, just the list of the, the S&P 500 best performers. Most of them are well-known names. You had United Health, UNH is on there. At number nine, it was on there. Um, Ross Stores is on there, ROST. Kansas City Southern, one of the rails is actually on there. KSU is the ticker. Best Buy is on there, BBY. Um, then you had uh, Amazon, they were number two, and Monster Beverage was the winner for the, that 30-year time period. Maybe maybe Edward was in Monster Beverage, we don't know. M-N-S-T, M as in Mary, N as in Nancy, S as in Sam, T as in Tom. They went IPO in August of 1995. And through 2020, had an annualized return of 37%. 10,000 invested was 29 million by 2020. Of course, stocks have come down in the two years since then, but not too shabby. Maybe he was in both Microsoft and Monster. Um, I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt that you know he might have gotten more than one of these big winners in that portfolio to get to that 170 million. But either way, it really only does take the one, and there's a lot of options out there. So um, be sure to get get yours. And um, the way to do it is to just start. Edward had to just start at some point, even with a low amount of money. And so did Ann Scheiber. She started with, um, you know, fairly low amount of money for back then. It was about a little over $80,000. But you can start with as low as, you know, $10, $100. You just uh, dollar cost average and start on your goals and your investing plan. So be sure to subscribe so you don't miss a single one of these uh, podcasts because these are my favorite. And I'm sure and hope that there's some more stories like this that are out there. I know that there are because they do creep out into the um, news media every once in a while. But this was an extraordinary one. So be sure to subscribe to get all of our podcasts. We're on Apple Podcasts. We're on Spotify. You can get us on Amazon Music. We're on SoundCloud. We're on a ton of different platforms. Be sure to get us somewhere. And I'll see you again next week with some more stacks. This material is being provided for informational purposes only, and nothing herein constitutes investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, or a recommendation to buy, sell, or hold a security. Do not act or rely upon the information and advice given in this podcast without seeking the services of competent and professional legal, tax, or accounting counsel. Publication and distribution of this podcast is not intended to create, and the information contained herein does not constitute an attorney-client relationship. No recommendation or advice is being given as to whether any investment or strategy is suitable for a particular investor. It should not be assumed that any investments in securities, companies, sectors, or markets identified and described were or will be profitable. All information is current as of the date herein and is subject to change without notice. Any views or opinions expressed may not reflect those of Zach's investment research as a whole.